So as we come to 2 Chronicles, we, David has, King David was such a dominant person in the latter part of 1 Chronicles, and now he's in eternity, and Solomon is our focal point for four weeks, counting last week. We still have three weeks, have three more weeks with Solomon, where he's such a, a towering figure in the scriptures, being the son of David. And as we saw when we wrapped up 1 Chronicles, that Solomon was going to be entrusted with building the great temple of God, uh, an architectural feat, a monetary feat, a, just an amazing accomplishment. And of course, the temple stood for centuries. And that's where we're at as we come to Solomon tonight. So Solomon is on the move. He's going to get it going. And we pick it up in chapter 3, where he's been king for a couple of years. And this is what we read. Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Onan the Jebusite. And he began to build on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. This is the foundation which Solomon laid for building the house of God. The length was 60 cubits. Now bear in mind a reminder, a cubit is generally considered a foot and a half. So anytime you get a cubit, you can just think of a foot and then add half times to that, okay? So Solomon, this is the foundation which Solomon laid for building the house of God. The length was 60 cubits, so like 90 feet, by cubits according to the former measure, and the width 20 cubits, and the vestibule that was in front of the sanctuary was 20 cubits long across the width of the house, and the height was 120. He overlaid the inside with pure gold. The larger room he paneled with cypress, which he overlaid with fine gold, and he carved palm trees and chain works on it. And he decorated the house with precious stones for beauty, and the gold was the gold of Parvim. He also overlaid the house, the beams and the doorposts, its walls and its doors with gold, and he carved cherubim on the walls, cherubim being angels. And he made the most holy place, its length was according to the width of the house, 20 cubits, and its width 20 cubits, he overlaid it with 600 talents of fine gold. The weight of the nails were 50 shekels of gold, and he overlaid the upper area with gold. In the most holy place, he made two cherubim fashioned by carving and overlaid them with gold. The wings of the, parabin, the cherubim were 20 cubits in overall length. So that's like 30-foot wings, right? And one wing of the one cherubim was five cubits touching the walls of the room, and the other wing was five cubits touching the wing of the other cherubim. With one wing of the other cherubim was five cubits touching the wall of the room, and the other wing also five cubits touching the wing of the other cherubim. The wings of these cherubim spanned 20 cubits overall, and they stood on their feet, and they faced inward. And he made the veil of blue, purple, and crimson, and fine linen, and wove cherubim into it. And also he made in front of the temple two pillars, 35 cubits high, and the capital that was on the top of each of them was five cubits. And he made wreaths of chain work, as in the inner sanctuary, and put them on top of the pillars. And he made 100 pomegranates and put them on the wreaths of the chain work. And then he set up the pillars before the temple on the right hand, on the other, the left. And he called the name of the one on the right hand, Jachin, which means established. And the name on the left was Boaz, which means strength. So this is our introduction to Solomon building the temple. First of all, you just see the beauty of what he's doing. It's all pure gold. See, the next chapter, which we'll get to shortly, the primary metal is bronze. And it's quite a contrast. But here in the interior of the temple, so in the holy place and then the most holy place, it's just pure gold. It's just pure gold everywhere. 
And it's like, wow. And just a reminder, gold is the metal of heaven. Gold is in the next dimension. I think I've speculated, and it's, spirit, it's purely speculation, but I've tried to understand why in 6,000 years of human history, gold has always been a monetary standard for different governments and societies that have existed. And even now, for example, China and Russia and the, the BRICs, the, what we call the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and so forth, they're all about getting gold. They're all about manufacturing, you know, finding gold and gold. They, they want it because they want to support their economies and their currencies with gold. But there's really no real value to gold. That's the funny thing. Like if we're in a famine, gold's not going to help us at all. So there's something about gold. It's like, like it's gold. Like how does that work? And even now, if you just go on the stock market, gold's a measuring rod for currencies. The currencies are measured by their value for gold. Like the dollar's maybe like $1,980 to the bullion coin, just a regular gold coin last time I looked last week. So it's funny how gold is like that. Like, what is it about gold that, that draws men and women in human history to gold as a standard of currency or a standard of wealth within their economy? Because it's been this way the entire human experience if you study ancient civilizations. It's fascinating to me. Well, I have a theory. It says that God's put eternity in our hearts, right? In Ecclesiastes 3, he's put eternity in our hearts. Gold is the middle of heaven. We're told heaven is streets of gold. We're told the throne room is gold. We're told when the, the tabernacle was originally built there in the wilderness 400 years, 500 years before this, it's a pattern from heaven. And so I think personally there's something about looking at a gold coin or gold that it's in, it has an intrinsic value against currencies, but what it really has is declares another dimension. See, it's interesting because certain things that God made in time, space, and matter are described for us in eternity, and gold is one of them. So we can say this about gold. Gold is the metal of heaven, and gold is the metal of eternity, and that's personally why I believe it holds a value in all human societies and human history because of that. I think there's some mystery to it, but that's the most logical thinking that I can think of for why gold is a value standard for cultures even to this day. It's the heavenly metal, and in making the holy place, now remember, the holy place is only for the priest. So let's go back over the Levites. The Levites are one of 12 tribes of Israelites. They're the only tribe that can be in the service to the Lord of the tabernacle, previously the tabernacle and now the temple. The Levites are subdivided into three divisions, right? The Morites, Kohathites, and Gershonites. And the Kohathites are the only ones that are priests. So one third, only one third of Levites, of the tribe of Levite, can be the actual priest and do the priestly service. One third. And in the, the profound priesthood, the subdivision of Aaron is the high priest and whatnot. So it just gets more exclusive. In other words, to go in that holy place where there was the showbread and the lampstand and whatnot, the table of showbread, that's pretty elite. But the high priest would once a year go into the Holy of Holies, 20 cubits by 20 cubits where the Ark of the Covenant is, overlaid with pure gold, and only once a year to make atonement for his sins, and then to go back in with blood to sprinkle it to make atonements for the people's sin. That's what it's, we're reading about here. This is what Solomon is building here. What was in the tabernacle in the wilderness and what existed for four or 500 years throughout Israel's history is now home, the temple, 
This is a standing holy place, not a tent holy place, a tabernacle holy place, holy place. It's in the temple. And he built the veil, which God prescribed as well. In the book of Hebrews, we're told the veil is representative of Christ's flesh. So when Christ died on the cross, the veil was torn and a way was made. And that's a lot of the symbolism here, which we'll get to a little bit more as we go through looking at the temple. But it's gold. Everything is gold. And the artwork is angels, which is heavenly as well. And we think of like Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 5, the throne room of God, the rainbow behind the Father's presence, the four living creatures and the 24 elders. It's a dimension beyond us that's so holy and set apart, not like anything that we know or experience in the human experience. It's so beyond us where we're going to in glory. Isn't that exciting? It really is. It's, it's eyes not seen or ear heard what God has prepared for those who love him. It's, it's just so beyond us, the glory that we're going to, but we have to see it by faith. And we need to live by faith and apprehend it by faith. But when I say we need to be watching and ready for the day of the Lord, we're, it's not to catch us off guard for something gone wrong. It's to catch us up for glory upon glory. So it's an exciting thing to think about that. This chapter is glorious. It's gold. It's heavenly. It's the holy place. It's the holy of holies. It's all beautiful. It's the holiness of the Lord. That's what this chapter is. All gold, all holiness, the medal of heaven. It's glorious. And as the people would come to the temple, they could see those two pillars. And the, you know, the children might say when they show up at the temple with their parents, hey, mom, dad, what's, what's with these two pillars? You know, or, or maybe they get old and oh, dad always taught me that you know, the one, this is Jachin, which means established, and this is Boaz, which means strength. So how's that play out? Well, the Lord would want people, when they came from all over the, the territories, when they came to Jerusalem for the feast and to the place of the Lord, that as one generation proclaims our, his, the praise of the Lord to another, that, you know, it wouldn't be a flippant thing coming to a holy place. It'd be a special thing coming to a holy place. And they'd be reminded, no matter what each generation would face, that these two pillars remind us that God has established us, that the existence of Israel is established upon the promises of God, who he is and what he has for them. He is the one that initiated the covenant. He established them, much like the church is established by the Lord. He has sent his son and birthed the church, and he's established us. And we're really, truly, we're, we're for the world. The church is the salt and light of the world. And even as that first pillar meant established, man, we have the truth. And if people want to be established in the human experience, we have it. And when people come to church, they should come to church, as you do tonight, with verse by verse through the Old Testament right now, to be established in your faith with the whole counsel of God, from Genesis to Revelation, as we open our Bible, and you're looking at your Bible, and I'm looking at my Bible, and we're reading it together, and we're rightfully dividing the word of truth and applying it properly, we are becoming established in our spirit, mind, and body, who we are, our total person, because we're told to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, all of it. We're triune in our nature, as is God himself, as is our universe. So we're here tonight to be established. And we're here to be strengthened, right? This is where you can come to be established and really know what life is about and know what truth is, but to be strengthened because we know as we walk out these doors, there's challenges we face. Every day there's problems and obstacles and challenges and things that we have to face. And so we come here to worship the Lord and sing songs to the Lord 
and be established. It's like when David, before he stepped into eternity, he set up that perfect sequence of priests who would do the animal sacrifices to, in a sense, be established with the blood and to put the people under the blood for forgiveness and cleansing. But then he set up all those singers to remind them, we praise the Lord. And in, when the praises go up, you know, man, that's, it's, it, it moves heaven and earth. We see with Israel in times of the Old Testament, often before battles, they might praise the Lord. They'd shout praises to the Lord. When you go to the house of the Lord, to church for us, you want to you leave church being built up and encouraged. If you need to be corrected, that's good too. But to be, to be established in truth and to be strengthened in that truth, to go face what you're facing in the house you live in, to go face what you're facing in the neighborhood you're living in, in the place you work, the state you live in, and the country you live in. To be strengthened, as Paul would say, for the good fight, as light shines in darkness. So I would say to you, my goal every time we gather together here, that you'd be able to sing praises to the Lord. And you would, in fact, be established and strengthened for this journey to the last day. That's what we're doing. But this is a holy chapter because this is heavenly stuff. This is angels and gold and the, the holy of holies to be established. May the Lord continue to establish us. And of course, we're told there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, that the church is the pillar of truth for planet Earth. So if we think of these two pillars, our existence here is a pillar to be a pillar of truth. And so it's so important, and I taught quite extensively on the authority of scriptures just a few studies ago. But truth, we're not speculating. We're not tossed to and fro by the whims of society or men's and changing laws and judges and things like that. We are established in the word of God and it's absolute truth. And it strengthens us to fight the good fight, whatever it looks like, as unto the Lord, and let God take care of us. So praise the Lord. Now, I will point out one other thing about this. Solomon took him four years to begin this project, but there's reason to believe it took him four years to get it ready. A lot of planning going on to build the temple, right? They were bringing the wood down from Tyre, Sidon area, modern Lebanon. If you recall, even during the COVID crisis, a lot of builders, if you're trying to do home improvements, it might take you six months to a year to get the supplies. Remember the supply chain was all, it's a process. And so Solomon's been a king for four years, but what an exciting time to be alive to watch it begin to take place, to see Hiram come down from up, up north. You know, like, dude, that's Hiram. Yeah, his mom's Israelite, his dad's a Phoenician. You know, like, dude, it's like, he's like, man, he's, he's the guy, man. He knows how to get this done. See him walking, like, dude, there's Hiram right there, bro. Look, there he is, you know. And you see, all of a sudden, you see activity. You see things happening. You see timber coming up from the coast, right? Coming up from the foothills. From the Mediterranean Sea, you see the men bringing it and how they're transporting all that timber and all that supplies. For four years it was happening. Something's, hey, listen, body of Christ, something's happening in Jerusalem. And every day you see it, more supplies coming in, more things happening. Hey, it's happening. It's like when they're building Pacific City down here in Huntington Beach. It was supposed to be built before the 0809 crash, but then the 0809 crash put Pacific City on hold for quite a few years. 
If you recall around 2010, 2011, if you're down there in Huntington Beach on PCH by Huntington Street, Pacific City was this massive empty lot. In fact, it was like a trench almost. It was below ground. And, and it's like, but somebody had to see what somebody was planning. Somebody was spending and somebody was preparing. And when we first saw the designs for the apartments that would be built and the shopping center, I was like, I can't even, there used to be a crummy restaurant in a dingy hotel here back in the 70s when we came up to do surf contests. We stayed at that hotel. But someone had the vision and the plans and the desire and they put it together and now you drive by Pacific City and you see everyone out there watching the sunset or whatever and you see those apartments. It takes time. And I remember around 2012, 13, 14 when we moved to Huntington, it all started to happen. And it started being built and then you see it going up and it's like, wow, look, this is an upgrade for Huntington Beach, big time. And now you see it all the way it is. Something was happening. And being residents of Huntington Beach, we could see that unfolding for a couple of years, the process. What about this? What an amazing time to be alive and see this happening. Oh, what an exciting time. Solomon began to build. It took him four plus years to get everything together. But once they did the groundbreaking of the pictures with the shovel, right, and the ribbon, Solomon begins groundbreaking on the temple. Oh, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It took him like eight, about eight years, right? What an exciting time to have been alive in Jerusalem. David's gone, but you see the energy. There would have been an energy in the atmosphere of the community there in Jerusalem. And so we pick it up now on another element of the temple, the outer court. So chapter 4, we pick it up. We're the pillars, church is the pillar, and we come here to be established and strengthened in our faith. And we don't need the temple. We can do it in catacombs. That's church history. Moreover, he made a bronze altar. 20 cubits was its length, 20 cubits its width, and 10 cubits its height. For the record, the the altar of sacrifice doubled in size from the previous one at the time of Moses. It's an upgrade. It's a double size. Basically, it's a grill. It's a double-sized altar now from what it previously was under Moses. Then he made the sea of cast bronze, 10 cubits from one brim to the other, It was completely round. Its height was five cubits, and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. Under it was the likeness of oxen encircling it all around, 10 to a cubit, all the way around the sea. The oxen were cast in two rows when it was cast. It stood on 12 oxen, three looking toward the north, three looking toward the west, three looking toward the south, and three looking toward the east. The sea was set upon them, and all their back parts pointed inward. It was a handbreadth thick, and its brim was shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It contained 3,000 baths. He also made 10 lavers and put five on the right side and five on the left. To wash in them, such things as they offered for burnt offerings, they would wash in them. But the sea was for the priest to wash in. And he made 10 lampstands of gold according to their design, set them in the temple, five on the right side, five on the left. He made 10 tables, placed them in the temple, five on the right side, five on the left. He made 100 bowls of gold. Furthermore, he made the court of the priest and the great court of the doors for the court. And he overlaid these doors with bronze. And he set the sea on the right side toward the southeast. Then Hiram made the pots and shovels and bowls. So Hiram finished doing the work that he was doing for King Solomon for the house of God. The two pillars and the bowl-shaped capitals were on top of the two pillars. The two networks covering the two bowl-shaped capitals 
which were on top of the pillars, 400 pomegranates for the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on the pillars. He also made carts and lavers on the carts, one sea and 12 oxen under it, also the pots, the shovels, the forks, and all their articles. Hiram his, mas Hiram, his master craftsman, made of burnished bronze for King Solomon for the house of the Lord. In the plain of Jordan, the king had made casting clay pots. He had made them in casting clay pots, clay molds, between Succoth and Zeredad. And Solomon had all these articles made in such great abundance that the weight of the bronze was not determined. Thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of God, the altar of gold, and the tables which were the showbread, the lampstands with their lamps of pure gold to burn in the prescribed manner in the front of the inner sanctuary with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold, the purest gold, the trimmers, the bowls, the lattles, and the censers of pure gold. As for the entry of the sanctuary, its inner doors to the most holy place and the doors of the main hall of the temple, they were gold. They are made of gold. So we have gold here when it's describing the interior of the temple, but we have bronze describing the exterior of the temple, which is interesting because if you think about it, the, the bronze, gold is heavenly with the angels, but what do we get here? We get, we get an altar. Why is that altar there? For our sins. The altar's there for sinful people. See, the holy place and the holy of holies and the Ark of the Covenant inside the temple is the holiness of the Lord. That's heavenly. That's the glory of the Lord. God says, I am holy and I must be regarded as holy as those who come to me. And since God is light and him is no moral darkness at all, in understanding holiness, everything that God is and does is good. Someone recently asked me, why would God allow this or that? And I had to kind of go over that basic call that K-Wave gets every week on to every man an answer or pastor's perspective. Explain to him, we have self-determination and we live in a fallen universe. In the end, we know that everything works together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God is good and God is light and he takes no pleasure in evil, nor does he take pleasure in the death of the evil as well, of the wicked, but that they would repent and turn to him. So, Chapter 3 is the holiness of God with his angels, things of heaven, gold, uh, unapproachable. The average Israelite, 11 tribes are out there going like, wow, man, I wonder what it's like to go in the big house. Like, you don't want to. You, you know, there's a reason you're out here by this. You and me, we get the bronze altar. Uriah the king went in there thinking he could go in there just in the old way, and he got leprosy, right? I must be regarded as holy by those who come near to me, the Lord says. Now, noteworthy, back in chapter 3, we're told this is all on Mount Moriah. And Mount Moriah is the circumference of about a mile. You know, about a mile. And in that mile, that's where the Dome of the Rock is right now, for the, the third holiest site for Muslims. That's where the Western Wall is for Israel, the holiest site for Jews. And that's about, one click this way, about three-quarters of a mile to the left is Place of the Skull, Golgotha. And if you go to Israel, like I said before, you can do your Jerusalem tour. You can go up on the Temple Mount where the Dome of the Rock is and where the Jews believe the original temple was. And then you can just walk right out the, this way over here, out the Arab sector and exit that gate and out of the north. And you'll show right up there by the bus stop. It's mostly Arab territory or residence, neighborhood. 
and there's Golgotha. It's like staring at you. It's like it's a cross. It's a skull. It, it, you look at the side. It looks like a skull. There's an empty tomb. And if you do the tour trip, you go there and there. And we know Jesus was crucified at the place of the skull. In other words, when Christ came and died on the cross there for us, for our sins, we have the holiness of God in Christ. But that's golden, right? But we've got the sinfulness of man placed upon him. And that's our bronze. By the way, the Hebrew word describing the altar literally means killing place. It's a killing place. It's where you come and you kill the lamb and you kill the ox and you kill the calf and you kill the ram and you kill all these things because they're dying for your sins, for my sins, for our sins. It's the killing place. Chapter 3 is heavenly, holy. Chapter 4 here is earthly. What is, what's, do we have angels? No, we have oxen. Life is work, right? It's hard work. Life's a grind. We are sinful people saved by grace grinding it out for the glory of the Lord until the day of the Lord. Yes and amen. I mean, I relate more to oxen, you know, backed into each other, facing all four directions, than I do these beautiful seraphim, you know, like, well, that's, that's, that's a whole other. We don't know that dimension of the glory of the angels, but we definitely know the world of oxen grinding and plowing, right? We know to plow. One of the greatest compliments you can give someone for being faithful and diligent and say, like, oh, she's a plower. He's a plower. They just plow. They should say that about Pastor Chuck. If he's a farmer, he can just plow all day long, back and forth, plowing the field. That diligence, but it's a grind. It's work. The color is bronze. The altar is bronze. It's earthly. It's a killing place. These two chapters, Mount Moriah, it's cold, heavenly inside there, holy God. Outside here, bronze, killing place, oxen. And we have one meter, one meter between the oxen and the angels, the bronze and the gold, and it is the man Christ Jesus, yes? No one comes to the Father but by me. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. No one comes to the Father but by me. Isn't it beautiful? Because, you know, when you talk about the four spiritual laws, you have holy God, sinful man, right? And you put the cross in there, Jesus is the mediator. He's the way. And these two chapters are so contrasting to each other, aren't they? I mean, they really are. Like, if you're looking at details, gold, bronze, angels, oxen, (laughs) glory, killing place. This is the gospel. God made him who knew no sin, the glory of heaven in chapter 3, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteous of God. A bronze, bloody altar. I love it. The imagery is fantastic. Now, Hiram, so we saw in chapter 3 where Solomon began the work. And we talked just briefly about that. But it's pretty exciting when you actually begin the work, your first day of college or your first day on the job or the first day you begin this great project of something you're going to do. If you're a general contractor, this remodel or whatever, there is something about when you finally begin the work because now it's not just an idea or a wish or a thought or a vision or like you're it's tangible beginning the work is important but most importantly is finishing the work right as i say the older you get the more you appreciate a job well done and a job completed don't tell me what you're going to do show me what you've done right finished job and here is Huram in verse 11 where it says he finished doing his work for King Solomon. I was thinking about this for Hiram. 
He came down from the north. He was the general contractor. Every other subcontractor was underneath him. He's the guy running the show. Absolutely. He's by Solomon's side. They were bringing in wood and timber from the Mediterranean Sea, 60 miles this way to Jerusalem, and they're bringing from about 25 miles this way down there from Jericho in the, the Jordan Plain where they're molding everything and bringing it up. I mean, Hiram's going back and forth. He's, 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 he doesn't have his cell phone, right? Or his, you know. I was with Steve the Flipper the other day, and we're at Starbucks, and I, I saw him in a brand-new Mercedes. I go, Steve, what is this? He's like, yeah, I'm going to flip it. Because, uh, you know, he's a contractor. He's, you know, bidding this. He's doing that. He's remodeling that. I was like, I was like what? He goes, yeah, I bought it for $95,000. i am going to flip it for $105,000. I was like, wow. Yeah, I'm just going to drive it for a week. And, you know, I thought, I said, man, that's a nice chariot right there. I put it in biblical terms. like, you know, Flipper Steve's driving a pretty sweet chariot around Orange County right now. And I'm going to suggest to you, her, I'm working for Solomon, was driving a pretty sweet chariot between the Jordan Plain and the Mediterranean coast where Tel Aviv is. He's the big boss, and for almost 10 years, he's worked on this project. He's coordinated getting all the resources down from his region, his people. Hey, you guys, get with the plan. Hey, supplies, shipping, sending, mounts due. Let's go, let's go, let's go. They're waiting on us. He's the one that's doing it all. He's got all these moving parts, shipping, receiving, costs, paying your bills on time, and all that. And then he's there in Jerusalem where it's all going to happen. Hey, these guys on it... Solomon gave him like, what, 30,000 workers here, 70,000 workers there, 3,600 subcontractors in charge of the workforce, right? We saw that. So he had 3,600 people that worked underneath him that were the chief subcontractors underneath him. Hey, how's it going over there? Hey, what's going on with the stone quarry over here? Hey, Solomon, this was his life. This was this man's entire life. He grew up with a mom who taught him the scriptures and a dad who taught him how to be a great contractor. That's, that was his life. And think about this. You know, when, you're, when you, you've done something really great and it's over with, where do you go from there, right? I was thinking about this. Like, Hiram had this 10-year adventure. Maybe his wife and kids came down to Jerusalem and were there with him. I just can't even imagine what it was like for Hiram when he finished the job. Like, wow. Kind of like when you retire from a career for 35 or 40 years and you get recognized for it. It's like, wow. Oh, where do you go from here? Like, what do you? Hiram goes home. Can you imagine Hiram when he gets home to Tyre and Sidonian area? And like, hey, I haven't seen you for a while. What have you been up to? Because there's always someone like that that doesn't know what's going on. And the neighbor's like, hey, you knucklehead. He's been building the temple for King Solomon. Where you been? But he's experienced something that most people will never relate to. 20 years later, if he made it into his 50s and 60s, right? Hey, we've all gone and seen the temple now. How did you do that? How did that happen? He had a a monumental event in his life that lasted about 10 years, and he completed it. And this is what I keep saying for all of us. There's ebbs and flows and peaks and valleys in life, but I think it's so important for all of us that we see something greater in our future than whatever we left in our past. It's so important. I just think it's so important that... We don't measure tomorrow by what we did yesterday, but simply by what the Lord is showing us today that he has for our future. We don't want to live on the glory of something that happened 20 years ago, building Solomon's temple. We want to live in the moment, whatever God has for us here and now. I always respect super successful people who are still doing what they love to do, particularly if it's for the Lord. 
when they're not really all that famous anymore and their greatness is behind them. Like famous athletes who did incredible things and then you see them doing stuff quietly for the Lord 30 years later and no one even is really aware of it. But they're doing the stuff. If you finish the job right the first time, then you set yourself up for more opportunities and more jobs to finish right the second time. A job well done is the greatest thing we can really appreciate in time, space, and matter. They say, Joey, how do you know that? Because Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant, as a summary of your life, if you've done a job well done. How many scriptures are there where it implies what God tells you when you step into eternity? Not that many. And what's the main one? When he looks at his servant and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Not just one job well done, the temple, or multiple jobs well done, but a pattern of your life, of things entrusted, begun, faithfully, diligently applied to, and completed properly for the glory of the Lord. That's, that's the life. See, one job well done leads to another job well done, and another one, another one, and it's an upward spiral of the good things of the character that God would establish in our life. And it's not even so much what we accomplish that becomes the great thing that's been accomplished. It's who we became in the process of accomplishing it. To get something and accomplish something you haven't done means you probably need to change who you are to get there. And great things require great efforts and great people. And new things require new efforts and new adventures and new skills. It isn't so much the prize, but who you become as you move toward that prize. The destination is one thing, but really who you become when you complete that is the most important thing. And so we want to do a good job, and we want to do the job right, and we want to complete the job, and we want to walk away from jobs, whether it's appreciated or not, and seasons of jobs and things that God's entrusted to us, that we know between us and the Lord it's well done. And that because as we are faithful in each of these things, then there's new things that come to us. And so I think it's important, especially when you embark on major tasks, different projects that you might be doing, that you determine what the completion of that job looks like because there's a clarity. The temple would certainly look like something when it was done. So you determine what completion looks like. And it's always ideal if you have a completion date. You know, in writing a book and you start watching YouTubes about writing a book, one almost across the board, unilaterally, the YouTube people will tell you, hey, set deadlines. Deadlines for this drop. Deadlines for publishers. Like you work backwards from a deadline. And I've had deadlines the entire time on my book. And I'm still working. I'm not married to those deadlines, but because we're not going to sacrifice quality for sloppiness. But they do hold me accountable every day, every week, to where we're working. And that's good for all of us. It's good to know, hey, this is the end result we're looking for. The temple's done. All these things, the checklist is done. Think in 10 years, whatever it is. But it's just nice when you know you've done something and you've completed it, right? Because you, you, in a sense, you're, in a lot of ways, your sense of self-worth goes up when you complete things. And when you don't complete things, you have to fight that sense that you failed or, or fell short in what it was you were doing. I know because when I was part of the Olympic training and I didn't finish that co- coach's cohort, is one of those things in my life that I didn't get to finish. And it was just strange. And you just put it in the file of we'll figure it out later because I was done. But it's one of those things that always kind of bothered me. Like, I didn't really 
It's supposed to be a two-year commitment. I walked after one year because I was done coaching and we're just focused on the ministry and moved on. But it's one of those things I'm like, uh, I just can't let myself get bothered by it. But every one of us in this room knows when you've completed something properly, it feels a whole lot better than when you don't. So it's good to define your task, have clarity what it looks like when it's done, and to do the job right and do it in a way that glorifies the Lord. Chapter 5. So all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold, all the furnishings, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of God. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel, in Jerusalem, that they might bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord up from the city of David, which is Zion. Therefore all the men of Israel assembled with the king at the feast, which was in the seventh month. So all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the ark, And then they brought up the Ark of the Tabernacle of Meeting and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up. Also, King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him before the Ark were sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. Then the priests brought in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. The poles extended so the end of the poles of the ark could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside. They are there to this day. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets. Now we know previously Aaron's rod and the jar of manna had been in there, but over 500 years they disappeared, which Moses had put there at Horeb. When the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel, when they had come out of Egypt, And it came to pass when the priests came out of the most holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without keeping to their divisions. So it got kind of crazy, got a little bit free-for-all there. And Asaph uh, and the Levites who were the singers, all those of Asaph and Hermon and Jethun, remember David appointed these guys and recognized these guys back in 1 Chronicles, with their sons and their brethren, stood at the east end of the altar, clothed in white linen, having cymbals, stringed instruments, and harps, and with 120 priests sounding with trumpets. Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and the singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord when they lifted up their voices with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Then the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with the cloud so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. What a beautiful scene. So everything came together. There are still, so they finished the temple. You got the outer court, the bronze altar, the, the color bronze. You got everything inside, the gold but we need the Ark of the Covenant to come to the, Holy, the holiest of holies place. So they got to go get the Ark of the Covenant. It wasn't there. And all those priests are gathered. There's so many priests and Levites there. They're not even in, identified by like their unit or their division. They're just all there like, man, it's a special event. If you miss, it's a bad day to have the flu, right? If you miss this day, you don't get a redo. It's, it's that day. This is, this is happening once in time, space, and matter. Not even once in a lifetime or once in a millennial. This is happening once like this. I mean, Ezra and them, they rebuilt the temple years later, but the wailing was so loud, they didn't know if people were crying because it wasn't the equal to glory of the previous temple, this one, 
or they're crying because they're the next generation, they're just so happy to have a temple. But there was nothing like this. There were no days like this. For a decade, you watch all this construction going on. You watch all this happening. You're resident in Jerusalem. And then here it is like, you're like, hey, man, they're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant tomorrow. It's like a parade, right? Like people get up early all over Southern California to come watch the Huntington Parade on 4th of July to go sit on Main Street somewhere in someone's front yard, right? (laughs) Can you imagine like if, hey, the Ark of the Covenant's coming tomorrow, man? How would you even sleep? I know WG wouldn't sleep. We like to sleep. Most of us like to nap, too. I'm telling you what, I don't think we're sleeping or napping when we know those guys are showing up with the Ark of the Covenant to put it in the Holy of Holies. This scene, hundreds of skillful musicians praising the Lord. Praising the Lord, proclaiming his character of goodness, proclaiming his actions toward humanity, his mercy. Here they come. Here come the priests. Son, look. Daughter, look. Hannah, Leah, look. I don't want to cry. Hannah, look. It's the Ark of the Covenant. Here they come. I can't quite see it. Get on my shoulders. Look, 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 look. There it is. Daddy, I see it. Like, this really happened, body of Christ. This happened, worship generation. The Lord came to time, space, and matter on this day. All the pieces came together so beautifully. The priests did exactly what they were supposed to do in offering the animals. The singers of the priests, they did exactly what they were supposed to do with their singing. Everything David had envisioned five, six, eight years prior, ten years prior, twelve years prior. It's all happening now. He saw it before it happened. And on this day, it is the most glorious of all days. Wow. Can you see it? All the people. Man, what if we lived up by Galilee and we got, we're like, hey, dude, I heard like the next three, four days, they're bringing it, they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant. We got to go. Oh, we got to finish, you know. Uncle Mordecai's out there. I got to finish. No, no, you, you, we're going. I just, I can't even imagine. I just, I just can't even imagine. This day is so glorious. If the, if the cloud and the presence of the Lord didn't come, it's still glorious. The singing, the praising, the sacrifices, it's all glorious. All the parts came together. And isn't it beautiful when the people of God give their best and they all have different roles and things to do and we're content and fulfilled and joyful in those roles? So if we're sacrificing animals, that's what we do. We're that 20 by 20 grill. And if we're in white linen and we're singing songs as one... That's what we do. Someone's got to do the animal sacrifices, and we want skillful singers and drummers with cymbals, and and it was all happening. It all came together. And by the way, I'm quite certain in eternity, all that we've done and let the Lord do in our life, it all come together. It's a beautiful tapestry in eternity. All the people we're connected to are connected to us. It'll just be like this. So, So much more than this. It'll just be a beautiful tapestry. We don't even know what, what grand things we're a part of in this universe. Our tithes and offerings. Our kids are learning about the missionaries we've been supporting in Africa. Like Susie Cuse and all that she's doing, been doing for 20 plus years in South Sudan. Who even knows? We did the altar. We did the singing. Did they do this? They do that? Who even knows how, how our prayers and our offerings have impacted the world and our generation and we're going to see it in eternity. It's going to all come together. 
It's just going to all come together. But instead of the, the bronze altar and the, the priest singing, it's going to be the angels and King Jesus as the center of it all. Wow. What a glorious day this was. And then the cloud comes. I mean, the presence of the Lord in the Old Testament. When the cloud comes, hey, it's came over. <laughs> Everyone, uh, this is where we fall on our face. In the New Testament, the cloud comes. This is where we stop talking, Peter, on the Mount of Transfiguration. When the cloud comes, when the cloud comes, this is where Jesus goes up. When the cloud comes, this is when the virgin conceives. When the cloud comes, the, the Most High will overshadow you. The cloud. Luke 1. When the cloud comes, man, it's the day of the Lord. The cloud's going to come for us. Man, it's going to come for us. It's going to be a glorious thing to step into eternity when our hearts are set for eternity, which I know most of yours are. What a glorious thing. Man, a holy place, a killing place, and a holy cloud. <laughs> what a cluster of chapters, on huh, WG? It's beautiful. This is who we are. We're the church. We represent all this right now with King Jesus, and this is our future on the highest level in the next dimension. And we just say yes and amen.